0: All candidates, regardless of experience or party, can be counted on to reliably tell you one thing. It's the equivalent of a superhero's Genesis story. That moment when an individual has their political powers activated. When person X decides, I can make a difference. I can change things. What this particular office needs is me. That moment when person X becomes candidate me. By now, you've probably heard that I, Tom Bullock, am officially, not really, running for office. And I, too, have a political genesis story. It begins with a small child staring at a TV screen.
1: Cross America, starting at...
0: Yeah, as a kid, I watched a lot of Sesame Street. But for this, I need to dig deeper, well past my first memories of Big Bird and the giant Canary's stuffed bear.
2: Radar and I are having a time out. My political
0: backstory begins on the night of November 4th, 1980, my very first memory of television. It was well past my bedtime, but as the youngest member of a family of news junkies, I begged to stay up. And my parents obliged, just long enough for me to hear this.
3: Well, The time has come. You've seen the map. We've looked at the figures, and NBC News now makes its projection for the presidency. Reagan is our projected winner. Ronald Wilson Reagan of California, a sports announcer, a film actor, a governor of California, is our projected winner at 8.15 Eastern... Standard time on this election. Behind
0: the anchor's desk was a huge map of America. Pretty standard stuff now. And just like now, each state would be colored in when it was won by either the Democrat, Jimmy Carter, or the Republican, Ronald Reagan. But the colors back then were different. Yes, still red and blue, but still different.
3: Here's why. We will be coloring in those on the map now in blue for Reagan. Or light gray black and white
0: you catch that not the black and white bit though that is pretty funny in 1980 the republicans were the blue team the democrats were red it wasn't until the 2000 election that america's political color palette flipped yes the same election that brought us hanging chads also set in stone the hues we use now to define politicians parties and more and more frequently, each other. This episode, we focus on folks trying to do some political redecorating, changing the party hue of a city or a state. And yes, with what's happened in Raleigh this week, we'll talk one of the oldest political tricks in the book. My party
1: cheated to win elections for years. Now that said, the other side is cheating way worse than we ever did. This is Candidate Me.
0: Episode 2, Political Flip or Flop. All successful campaigns love to say their candidate won because they were the right person with the right message at the right time. And for some, this is true. But for others, this claim is little more than a convenient myth, a way to deny the fact they basically owe their success to a mythical amphibian. And that amphibian has a name, the gerrymander. We launched this podcast and my pretend run for Charlotte mayor with a promise we'd show you not just the -the behind-the-scenes stuff that happens with campaigns, but also the shenanigans. And gerrymandering easily rises to the top of the shenanigans list. Why? Because it helps the party in power stay in power by creating very friendly districts for their candidates. The gerrymander first hatched in Boston back in 1812, But it has found a very hospitable home here in North Carolina, says Professor Rick Hassan, who runs the Election Law blog. I could teach an election law course using cases only from North Carolina. And no, that's not a compliment. This year alone, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled two of North Carolina's congressional districts were illegal racial gerrymanders, meaning the Republican lawmakers who drew the maps packed too high a percentage of African Americans into specific districts, which dilutes their influence in others. Perhaps sensing this was coming, lawmakers quickly redrew those maps just after the original lower court's decision on the case came down. The process took less than two weeks to complete, and it was done months before the High Court's ruling was issued. Then, on June 5th, the U.S. Supreme Court found 28 state legislative districts are also illegal racial gerrymanders. They ordered the political maps for state House and Senate seats be redrawn. So, did lawmakers again jump into action? Not visibly. But that changed this week. Committee will come to order. When the Select Joint Committee on Redistricting finally met.
2: As you are aware, the General Assembly will be redrawing legislative districts this year to comply with a court order.
0: Said Representative David Lewis, co-chair of the committee. But he quickly added,
2: As we await further guidance from the court on how to proceed and how this process should be conducted, we wanted to convene today's meeting for organizational and informational purposes. Translation,
0: in nearly two months, no real work had been done at least not by the Republican leaders of the General Assembly. The only new redistricting maps available for the public to see this day were drawn by the advocacy group Common Cause. And that announcement came with this caveat from Lewis.
2: In full disclosure, that organization is currently involved as plaintiffs in litigation that has been filed against the General Assembly.
0: Yep, a case about gerrymandering. As to Lewis's reference on waiting for court guidance, that may come soon. The same federal panel of judges which first found the districts were illegally drawn, they met this week, too, to hear arguments over just when the new maps must be drawn, by whom, and whether or not a special election must be held before the General Assembly meets next spring. Now, it would be really easy to cast this particular meeting as a nothing burger, since it amounted to a meeting to set the groundwork for yet unscheduled future meetings. But when asked by a Democrat if the Republican leadership will redraw the districts to seek their own partisan advantage, Lewis dodged the question.
2: The response to that, it it, it will be the prerogative of this committee to determine what the criteria are in the drawing of the maps.
0: Still, it seems clear that gaining a partisan advantage is what the Republicans controlling this process are looking to do. Thanks to a question from Senator Terry Van Dyne, we now know the man who helped guide the hands that drew the maps struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court, he's coming back.
1: That was Tom Hoffler. Will he be involved in this process again? Yes.
2: Yes.
0: Tom Hoffeller is based in Virginia, but he's become the top GOP map-making consultant across the country. A genius, evil or otherwise, depending on your point of view. Hoffeller combines big data and redistricting to gain the biggest partisan advantage possible, employing techniques like efficiency gap calculations, a way to figure out how a political party can gain a majority of seats, even if they garner a minority of votes. Besides his work here, Hoffeller and his team provided technical support to the Republican-controlled Wisconsin legislature when they last drew their districts. The U.S. Supreme Court will decide if that map breaks the law in its next session. Now, gerrymandering for partisan political gain is currently legal, though there are some exceptions. And both Democrats and Republicans are guilty of doing it. If the practice doesn't make you angry, you're not paying attention. That is the argument made by this man. I'm Jeff Jackson. I'm the state senator for District 37, which is a big piece of Mecklenburg County. He is a Democrat representing a district drawn by Republicans to be a safe Democratic seat. Now, why would they do this? The answer is simple. If you pack enough Democrats in a single safe district, you can actually create a larger number of safe Republican seats in surrounding areas. So gerrymandering, it can fairly be said, has made Senator Jeff Jackson basically invincible come election day. And that, he says in a video on gerrymandering, is the problem.
1: Here's how bad it's gotten in North Carolina. Out of 170 state legislators, 90% of us are essentially invulnerable in a general election. 90% of us have no real chance of losing to a member of the other party. We could endorse our opponents. We could participate in television debates with sock puppets and still win. Making the vast majority of your politicians invincible doesn't produce better politicians. It produces a group of people who don't need to listen to you and don't need to learn from you.
0: His examples are extreme, but his point is right. But wait, Jackson says, it gets worse because safe seats mean the real election comes not in November, but in the primaries, which means the small percentage of voters who actually vote in primaries have the most electoral sway.
1: Well, in North Carolina, 10% of the state votes in a Republican primary. And because Republicans are in charge right now, that means that that 10%, those folks on the furthest edge of the right edge are now the
0: legislative filter for the entire state. His numbers, by the way, are generally right, though there are some exceptions. And currently, Republicans don't just control the state legislature, they hold super majorities in both the House and Senate. This means if GOP lawmakers vote in a block, they can not only pass any bill they want, they can also override any veto from Democratic Governor Roy Cooper. Thus, they ultimately control which bills become law. But right now, with court-ordered redistricting underway, Jackson sees a real opportunity, maybe not to fully flip the North Carolina House or Senate from red to blue, but an opportunity to flip just enough seats in one of the chambers to break that all-important supermajority. Now you talk about this as completely changing politics. Really what that would do though is just allow vetoes to suddenly stand, which can be a powerful act, but it doesn't necessarily mean governing. It just means being able to stop bills that Democrats, your party, don't like, is that enough to basically do what you're describing as flipping Republican control of the General Assembly?
1: Well, unlocking the veto does two big things, and one of them you correctly identified. So the first thing you do is you get to say no to everything that you just staunchly disagree with, which means, for instance, no more HB2s. No more assaulting the judiciary in any number of ways. All of that comes to an immediate stop, which is reason enough for people on my side of the aisle to be really excited. But the other thing that it does in a more affirmative sense is it gives you negotiating leverage on things like tax policy, because they're going to try and pass more tax bills that redistribute wealth from the bottom to the top. It gives you enormous negotiating leverage on the budget. If you need the governor's signature on the budget, guess what happens to teacher pay? It goes up. Guess what happens to early childhood education? Pre-K
0: slots, they go up. That's an affirmative use of a veto. And the number of flip seats needed to, as Jackson says, unleash the power of the veto, it's pretty small, but that doesn't mean it will be easy. It's uh, three seats to win
1: in the House to break the supermajority and six in the Senate. So on the face of it, it looks like the House is closer, but the House, because they've done better in picking up seats in the last few cycles, they've got to play defense on more seats than we do in the Senate. So really the House probably has 10 or 12 seats in play and the the Senate, we can really devote all of our resources to offense. So we kind of have fewer seats in that way.
0: But those seats are harder to get because of the way the districts are drawn. And the North Carolina Senate, if you just simply look at the map, it is heavily favoring rural areas where you tend to find stronger Republican
1: support. That's absolutely true. So if you look at all of these state Senate races, we voted about 50-50, but it's a 35 to 15 split Republican-Democrat, just to give people some sense of how the map has been drawn and how skewed it is.
0: So let's clarify that. You mean Democrats received about the same number of votes as Republicans in the North Carolina Senate, but they control 20 fewer seats. Is that right?
1: That's correct.
0: So what are the seats that you see as being potential flip targets for Democrats in the 2018 election or a special election if it comes sooner?
1: So the redistricting, even though the same guys who drew the last map are gonna draw the new map, they've got, they're gonna have some tighter constraints on them. They're not gonna be able to cheat quite as bad, although they'll still be able to cheat. So we're going to have competitive districts where we don't right now. So right now, Mecklenburg has two Republican senate, uh, state senate districts. Neither of them is really competitive right now. Both of them will probably be competitive when we get the new maps in 60 days. So the areas around the state that we expect to have competitive races Charlotte, Raleigh, perhaps Winston-Salem, Greensboro, Fayetteville, Wilmington, almost every single big city in the state is going to become much more competitive
0: for Democrats. Now you use the word cheat. And I do, as a responsible journalist, have to point out this is something that both political parties, when it comes to gerrymandering, have done in the past.
1: You're absolutely right. And I think it's important to acknowledge that because this has been a bipartisan problem. My party, the Democratic Party, cheated to win elections through partisan gerrymandering for years. Now, that said, the other side is cheating way worse than we ever did. And it is empirically true. You can look at the numbers. The spread between how people vote and the type of representation you actually get, Republican versus Democrat, is much wider now than it ever has been. But more importantly, we did categorically engage in the same behavior we absolutely need to stop. The first bill I ever filed was independent redistricting, and it was one of the bills that the Republicans filed when they were in the minority and which my party threw in the trash can, which wasn't just a political mistake on our part, but a moral mistake. It is simply unethical
0: to allow politicians to draw districts to entrench themselves. But to fully take advantage of this possible opportunity, Democrats need candidates and volunteers to help them. So Jackson went online and created what he calls Game Plan North Carolina. So you set up a website and you start getting what? Inundated. It was about six, eight weeks after the
1: last election and I put out this website I say here's the situation we're a heavily gerrymandered state but we're relatively close to being able to break a supermajority. here's what that would mean for unlocking the veto I want you to sign up here if you want to be a candidate and I want you to sign up right below that if you want to be a future volunteer I started getting hundreds of people signing up saying that they were interested in being candidates which for a state legislative race is amazing that's a whole lot of interest half of the Republicans were unopposed in the last election but for the people who want to be future volunteers. That has just gone nuts. We're up to about 9,000 people who have signed up, which is like 40 times more people than volunteered in all the state legislative races across the entire state, and we're still more than a year out from the election. It's just an amazing amount of energy.
0: So let's look at the, the candidates that you have. You said you've had more than 100 wannabe candidates submit their names. Several hundred. Several hundred wannabe candidates. Um, there is a, I mean, this is, this is a, a dark political fact. There are candidates that you want to run with, and there are candidates that you don't want on your ticket, and you're nodding your head in agreement. So what do you do once you get these names? Are you or someone else starting to, to vet them?
1: That's right. We do. And, and there's a process for that, and it involves a team that we have in place. But at the end of the day, we can't tell anybody, you can't run for office.
0: So tell me about the team. How do you vet them?
1: Well, you ask, you send them a questionnaire, and you say, what's your level of interest? Tell us a little bit about your background. Tell us why you want to run. And if people can do a really good job at talking about either public education or health care or energy, then it's pretty clear they're going to be a good candidate. What are the red flags? The red flags are the people who um, are really angry and not much else. They say, I just can't stand what's happening. I don't like these people, and that's why I'm running. Well, that's a concern. There needs to be something good there. There needs to be something optimistic that you think we can accomplish by working together because the anger just won't won't feed you in, in the campaign. It won't get you through the hard slog that a campaign is, and voters
0: aren't going to connect with it. Jackson can't say just where these possible candidates may run. Nobody will know that until the new statehouse districts are drawn. And only then will we find out how his game plan performs. Now, we've spent a lot of time in the blue corner this episode, but up next, we do a flip of our own, going local to get a political perspective from the red team.
3: We're dominating in economic growth. We're dominating in business friendliness. Democrats see that and they can't beat it. So why then does its chairman say the Mecklenburg County GOP
0: has a brand problem? And what about their efforts to break the Democratic supermajority in Charlotte? You're listening to Candidate Me. In late March, Chris Turner was elected chair of the Mecklenburg County Republican Party, and when he surveys the political landscape here, he likes what he sees. First, there's a cadre of hardcore Donald Trump supporters eager to respond to any perceived slight.
3: Nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, looks like 13 people here right now. When
0: they heard word a fellow Trump fan was treated badly for their political views at a Starbucks, a sit-in ensued. The whole thing streamed live.
1: I'm gonna take up the rear because I got this.
3: And Chris Turner says the Trump administration took notice. I email once a week with the White House Political Activities uh, Group. We talk. They are signed up for our newsletter. They reach out anytime they hear something, like when Charlotte City Councilwoman Dimple Ajmira said this on WCNC's
0: political show, Flashpoint.
4: Look at all our uh, Republicans that are supporting Trump. I think they should have no place on City Council whatsoever or in mayoral race period, because you're talking about folks that are supporting uh, hatred, supporting division, that's supporting lies and disgracefulness.
0: The Democrat, who is now running for an at-large seat on the council, later did walk her words back a bit.
4: My remarks on Trump were never about political party. Instead, it remains standing up for our, my values and my principles, which includes, standing up for women, minorities, immigrants, disabled, and the poor.
0: Still, that same day, another pro-Trump sit-in, this time at the city council meeting. This one, larger than the last. So yes, when Chris Turner surveys the political landscape here, he likes what he sees. And yet, the MEC GOP chair says the local Republican Party has a brand problem.
3: We do have a brand problem, and I, I think that's something that MEC GOP is dealing with right now. We've got a lot of great ideas. We're not promoting those ideas in the right place to the right people. Namely, people in Charlotte. And the brand problem, Turner says,
0: it's not due to HB2. We know that it was hurting Charlotte. That and how long it took to repeal the law, Turner blames squarely on his political
3: rivals. And Mayor Roberts... And Roy Cooper, they did not want to compromise because it was in their best political interest to leave, leave it the way that it was. Whether you believe that or not, the GOP brand problem in Charlotte is real. We are one of the only municipalities in Mecklenburg County that is led by Democrats.
0: Charlotte is the political prize, so the GOP's lack of success in city government can leave Republicans feeling a bit demoralized, says MEC GOP Vice Chair Sarah Reedy-Jones.
4: Sometimes we would like to move beyond being a support system to fellow Republicans to being the voice of fellow Republicans.
0: In city government. But they have a long way to go for that to happen. Democrats don't just control Charlotte's government, they dominate it. Of the 11 seats on the city council, all but two are held by Democrats. Plus the mayor is also a Democrat. But all these seats are up for grabs in this year's election. And yeah, the candidates, they get the spotlight, but campaigns rely on their respective parties for very important things, like voter registration and turnout. But on a broader scale, political parties help define what every one of their candidates stands for. Parties define brand. Now, I'm gonna play you my interview with both Sarah and Chris, and while you listen, I want you to ask yourself, are they really rebranding the GOP or are they just trying to reach more people? That answer matters because MEC GOP's brand may define who wins and loses come November. Sarah speaks first.
4: The traditional campaign has changed over the past few years um, the boots on the ground strategy is very important but we're in a social media society now and so it is very important that we be able to do the um, the elevator pitch to people so they better understand what we're about and that their values most likely align with the mech gop here in our county
0: but the elevator pitch is a tricky thing because the number one point to an elevator pitch is you have to know who your audience is and let's deal with demographics. Here in Charlotte, demographics are not your friend when it comes to the MEC GOP, at least by voter registration. You are third following Democrats and unaffiliated voters. Mm -hmm. So who are the groups that you're identifying that you want to give this elevator pitch to?
3: You know, as we look at voter registration, that is irrelevant to Charlotte politics. You you may look at how people are registered. In the last few elections we've seen fourteen to seventeen percent turnout. If we can turn out ten percent of Republicans, we can win every seat in this city. All right, Chris, let me stop you there and say this then. To Republicans who are not prone to vote in municipal elections, what do you say? In this election cycle, we point to what happens when you have voted and what happens when you haven't voted. For 13 years, we had a Republican mayor, um, Pat McCrory, who um, you may agree or disagree with some of the things that he did as governor, but he had Charlotte's best interest in mind for 13 years straight. And then we saw voter turnout reduce, and we saw the numbers go down. We saw um, activity in our party slow down, and we started losing to Democrats. And we've seen we've had five mayors in the last eight years that have all been Democratic. And look at what happens when you don't vote.
0: But still, there are far more Democrats, registered Democrats, than any other group. What is your elevator pitch to people who who at least on their, on their voter registration form, have self-identified as Democrat.
3: So we have three things that we believe need to be improved in Charlotte that have been directly damaged by the elected officials that we have. You don't need to talk about the D or the R. Let's talk about our elected officials and those that want to serve. Those that have been elected have done disservice to us in terms of economic mobility and economic growth. They have done a disservice to us when it comes to public safety and infrastructure, and they've done a disservice to us as part of our brand as Charlotte, USA. So that's what our elected officials have done for us over the last eight years. But you bring up Pat McCrory's term as mayor.
0: 13 years is significant. Mm -hmm. I mean, economic mobility is not the kind of thing that just pops up with a certain mayor. This is something that is deep-seated. This is something that takes time to grow, to entangle folks, to make it so they are no longer economically mobile. Is it fair to basically try to pin this on one party or the other?
3: Um, So eight years is a long time. Um, And I think the important thing that Republicans continue to offer is that we do not spend your tax dollars on things that are not part of local government's responsibility. And while we may have seen a trend starting for economic mobility, it has been tremendously Um, magnified since the the recession.
4: And I want to jump into this. As a Republican, there's that stigma that we don't care. Republican Party espouses the values of um, economic freedoms that can bring people out of, of this, and we do see that there are wonderful things going on that are not within government control. So trying to find that um, that counterpoint of how we can look beyond the usual social engineering programs to see how we can really lift economic mobility, and I think that's a messaging issue that the Republican Party can tackle because we do believe in these steps to make sure people have economic prosperity.
0: So let's get back to the, the concept of the elevator speeches here. Um, Since we're talking about economic mobility, what is the elevator pitch to, let's say, an inner-city Democrat? Why should they switch
3: parties and vote for a Republican in this year's municipal election? You know, so we believe that the platform of economic growth, safety and infrastructure, and rebuilding a brand is the message for everyone in Charlotte. We believe that to an inner city democrat we can say that we want to bring community policing to your neighborhood we support cmpd we know that the police are not sitting there just protecting themselves but chris what you're also talking about here are long-held tenets of the republican
0: party safety building the economy jobs these are things that republicans have run on for decades and decades. This is not new ground, so what is the branding issue? Why do you think that message is not penetrating here in
3: Charlotte? So, you know, we, the largest growing population in Charlotte are millennials. Um, they're, They're not from Charlotte. And so this message that has been consistently delivered in other parts of the county where people have been here longer is not being delivered to those folks that are moving here.
4: Yeah, I mean, education is the key here. We are going into areas that we traditionally have not. I think in the past, we have been so focused on the boots on the ground minutia that we aren't going out and having these conversations with maybe um, perceived non-friendly.
0: Chris Turner adds, if you haven't already seen Republican candidates at Democratic strongholds, You will.
3: We are at the Black Caucus, at the New South Progressives, churches, synagogues, mosques everywhere that you would would think, really, is that a Republican that's there? We're there.
0: Working the rooms to get
3: crossover votes.
0: To me, this all sounds more like outreach than a new brand. And yes, that can make the Republican brand stronger. Still, remember these folks?
3: I'm going to take up the rear because I got this.
0: The Donald Trump supporters who held the sit-ins, they may be the real key to Republican chances in Charlotte. And Chris Turner states
3: they are not necessarily devoted to the GOP. They may see themselves as Trump supporters and nothing else, but if we can keep those voters motivated, this race becomes very tight very quickly.
0: So watch to see which direction Turner's mech gop brand reboot goes. Does he steer the party to the middle to court Charlotte's moderates? Or does he make a sharp right turn towards Trump country? Because doing both, that is tricky. Next week, we are all about cash and we answer our first question from one of you, our constituents. In the next episode, my fake campaign learns how politicians ask for money, what real candidates have taken in so far, and we shine some light on a dark money group hoping to influence your vote this year. And we do love your feedback, so send us your questions, thoughts on the podcast or episode ideas. You'll find the spot where you can leave them by going to wfae.org and selecting Candidate Me under the podcast tab.